0: Let's pray together. Our God and Father, You are great, and You are greatly to be praised. And how I agree with all of my heart with that song that we just sang. May praise and glory and honor and wisdom and strength and might and riches be to You forever and ever and ever. The exaltation of Your name is the joy of our souls. And so be exalted among us, Father, not just in the distant future, and not just in an abstract way, but in our presence here this morning. Please exalt yourselves, Yourself. Lord, if we could just see a vision of the greatness of God, 10,000 problems would find their solution. How puny all of our problems are, even difficult things, even deadly things like cancer, in comparison to the greatness and the mercy and the power of God. So please, Lord, lift up our eyes this morning, I pray. And allow us to see and feel and taste and touch in whatever measure the greatness of who You are. And how we praise You for Your graciousness and Your disposition to bless us in Your greatness. You didn't have to be that way, Father. But You are so kind and steadfast in love. And You are so disposed to blessing us out of Your great storehouses. And so we pray that You would do that now. Father, You know where every single person in this room is with You right now, and You know precisely what we need. And so I pray that You would minister to us as only You can do. And as I speak, Father, all I pray is that You would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts and glorify Your name. Take Your Word, plant it in our hearts, and let it sprout and grow and produce a harvest to the glory of God. We love you, Father. We thank you for the Word, and we yield ourselves to the wisdom of it now. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. I just love being a believer, don't you? It's just so sweet being in the presence of the Lord this morning, and enjoying Him, being fed by Him, worshiping Him, realizing all of life is about Him and not about me. It's so feeding to my soul, and it's so good to do that with you. Well, several weeks ago, before Easter and and Missions Week, we were meditating on Ephesians 5, 1-14. And to help us kind of get back on that train of thought, let me just reiterate a few things that I was saying, kind of get us back in the mindset, and then I'll pick up with verse 7 today. Before we came to know Christ, for those of us who do know Christ, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were simply following in the course of this world. We were under the dominion of Satan, and worst of all by far, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's Ephesians 2, 1-3. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, in other words, from citizenship in the kingdom of God, and we were without hope and without God in the world. That's Ephesians two twelve. We were darkened in our understanding. We were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to our hardness of hearts. We have become callous people and we had given ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every form of impurity. That's Ephesians four eighteen through 19. These things manifested themselves in different ways in all of us but they did indeed manifest themselves. Even for those of you who, like my wife, were saved at a very young age, this is a description of who you were before you were truly in Christ. It was not right before we were in Christ to engage in sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and whatever other sins we engaged in, but at least it made sense for who we were. At least it fit with who we were before we were in Christ. No one is surprised when someone who lives in darkness acts like they live in darkness. It's expected. It's expected. But now that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has begun to ascend over the horizon of our lives, and now that the mercy of God in Christ has begun to be poured upon us, Now that we have been made alive with Christ, it says in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, and we have been raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, it just doesn't make sense for us anymore to live in the way that we used to live. Now that the Almighty God has become our Father, He has called Himself our Father, And He has called us His beloved children in Ephesians 5.1. And now that all the affections He has for Jesus Christ, He has for us in Christ, it just doesn't make sense for us to make the kinds of choices we used to make and live in the way that we used to live. The only thing that makes sense for those of us who have received mercy from God in Christ is to live to behold Him and adore Him and praise Him and obey Him. Nothing else makes sense, friends. When you get to glimpse what God has done for us in Christ, the only thing that makes sense is that we come to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. That we come to be as Jesus was. Consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord and the, and the presence of our God. That's why Paul says what he says in verses three through four, if you'll look there with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Much less do these things. Don't even speak about them as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. In other words, zero. Zero of these things, for they're out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. What Paul is saying, friends, is let thanksgiving flow out of your heart and mouth because it's the only thing that makes sense for those of you who have become saints in Christ. It just doesn't make sense to live in any other way but to live for the praise of God and to let those kinds of things flow out of our mouths. Just like David said in Psalm 33.1, he said, He said, praise befits the upright in other words it looks beautiful on the upright and every one of us who are in christ by the grace and mercy of christ are considered the upright so praise befits us and it's the only thing that makes sense for us and so paul simply says put away your former manner of life and then he goes on in verses five to six to say just how serious he is about these things He wants to raise the stakes for us in verses 5 to 6, and He could not have raised the stakes any higher than He does. Let's read those verses. For you may be sure or certain of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So if we make a choice to make a life of sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and whatever else we give ourselves to, I'm not saying we don't fall from time to time. I'm talking about if we make a life of these things and we harden our hearts, We will not humble ourselves before God. We will not repent from our sins by His power and His mercy and His freeing blood. If we won't do those things, friends, we're going to go to hell and the wrath of God is going to abide on us. And as I said a few weeks ago, that is not a hateful thing that I just said, to threaten hell. It's not a hateful thing. In fact, it's a loving thing because hell is real. It's it's not an idle threat. And the wrath of God is real. It's not an idle threat. And so since these things are not idle threats, the only loving thing Paul could do and God could do and I as a simple preacher could do is tell you the truth and warn you away from hell. It is a loving thing to say, if you live in this way, you will end up in hell because neither God nor I nor Paul wants you there. There will come a day when each and every single human being will stand before God and give an account for their lives. I don't know what you think about this verse, but this verse is one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible to me where Jesus said, we'll give account for every idle word we've ever spoken. And that kind of caused you to tremble a little bit. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, idle words come out of this mouth. And it causes me to tremble that someday Jesus will rewind the tape recorder and push play. And I won't be able to say, I didn't say that. He'll say, really? Play? and there it will be. I'm going to have to answer for my life. Hebrews 9:27. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So as sure as death is the judgment. Acts 17:30 30 through 31, Paul said this. The times of ignorance and by the way, he said this to people he was witnessing to. These weren't believers. These were people he just started sharing the gospel with. The times of ignorance got overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world by righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance by raising Him, that is Jesus, from the dead. So as sure as the resurrection is, as sure as Christ is, so the day of judgment will be. And therefore... It is no small thing for a person who claims to be in Christ to give themselves to sin. And Paul is pleading with us, Wake up. Wake up. Repent from your sins and live for Christ. Do not play with these things. Is really, I think, what Paul would have us hear. Do not play with these things because the consequences of them are much more vast than you can imagine. And you know as well as I do, we're fellow sinners in this room, so we all understand when we give ourselves to sin, we tend to justify ourselves and minimize the seriousness of what we're doing. Don't we? I think we all do that. Don't do that. Don't play around with these things, because the consequences of them are very serious. That brings us to verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. Therefore... Do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. I want to take the whole Sunday and just talk about what that first sentence means. Do not become partners with them. And let's begin by looking at the word partners. That word literally means to partake in or to cast one's lot with, to share in or to partner with. The only other place that's used in the New Testament is also in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, where it says that Gentiles who are in Christ have become partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So if you're a Christian, you have become a partaker of Christ through the gospel. And so I think what Paul is trying to say to us here in chapter 5, verse 7 is, If you have become a partaker with Christ, you can no longer be a partaker of the world. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot live with one foot planted in Christ and the other foot planted in the world. It will not work that way. You cannot live with a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and a citizenship in any other kingdom. It's just not possible. Now, I'm not saying, and I'm sure Paul is not saying, that a person can't live a double life. Living a double life is possible, what I, but what I am saying is that in the end, it won't work, and that way of living will be exposed, and it will be shattered to pieces. It will not work. Imagine me with me, if you will, a, a soldier that's battling for Iraq, an, an Iraqi soldier. And by day he battles for Iraq. But by night he changes his uniform and he goes and he battles for Al-Qaeda. And neither one of them know what he's doing. He might get away with that for a while. But I promise you that the moment that person is exposed, both armies will reject that person. And whoever gets their hands on him first will kill him. You cannot serve two masters. It's that simple. And so it is with our allegiance to Christ. We're either partners with Christ or we're partners with the world. This is an exclusive choice we have to make. To choose one is to reject the other completely. As James said, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? enmity that means you make yourself an enemy of god when you put a foot in the world and when you put your foot in christ you make yourself an enemy of the world as well and so he says do not become partners with them for by the mercies of god you have become a partner of christ and that is an exclusive kind of partnership there is a little bit of debate among scholars about the word them that you see there in verse 7 when it says, uh, do not become partners with them. And the debate is, does that them refer to the sins that Paul listed or to the people that commit those sins? In other words, is Paul just saying to us that we should not partake of those sins? Or is he saying that we should not become partners with the human beings who commit those sins? And most scholars are where I'm at with this, thankfully, in this case. They think it's referring to the people that are committing those sins and not to the sins themselves. Because in verse 5, it says everyone who commits these things will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. Everyone. It doesn't say the sins themselves will not be present in the kingdom. And they won't, but that's not what verse 5 says. What verse 5 says is every person who lives in this manner, will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. And so, when Paul cautions us not to become partners with them, I think he means with the people who commit these sins. Now, that gives rise to some complicated things we have to work out here. So, if you'll turn with me, please, to First Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll be looking at First Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. We're going to try to discern together exactly who it is that we're not allowed to partner with and what it means in some measure uh, uh, what that sentence means first corinthians 5 9 to 13 is one of the most clear and helpful places in this respect paul writes i wrote to you in my letter referring to a letter they had received from him before not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy "...and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders?" Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And you see there in verse 9 and then again in verse 11, at least in the ESV, the the word there is associate. Well, that word associate literally means to to mix ingredients together, to stick them all in a bowl and, and mix them together. Now, children, I have a question for you, especially those of you kids who like to cook. What happens to ingredients when you stick them in a bowl and you mix them all together? What happens? Somebody raise your hand and tell me. They what? They become one thing, don't they? They become all one thing. And the identity of each individual ingredient is lost, isn't it? Like when you put sugar in there and you mix it all up, you don't see the sugar anymore. It looks different smells different often, and it certainly tastes different. And so what Paul is saying is, friend, do not be mixed together with people who commit sexual immorality and the rest, because it's like jumping back into the mixing bowl of the world, and before you know it, you're just going to be mixed in, and no one will be able to tell any difference between you and the world. Don't jump into the mixer of the world. Here's where things get a little bit tricky. Paul is very clear with us in this passage, that he is not referring to people who are of the world, though. Because, he says, if that was the case, then we'd all have to go out of the world. We would either have to join a convent or monastery, or we'd have to get on the space shuttle and evacuate the planet together and go set up shop on the moon. If you're going to get away from sinners, you're going to have to go a very long way, right? And so Paul is not saying that. The whole idea of the gospel is for those of us who are in Christ to go to the world and infiltrate it and cause some from every tribe and tongue and language to jump into the mixing bowl of Christ and to be mixed into the body of Christ and into the kingdom of Christ. To call Him theirs and for Him to call them His. That's the whole idea. And how will we do that if we isolate ourselves from the world and go join a convent or go live in a cave like they did in Qumran so many years ago? So that's not what Paul's saying. And the question comes up, well then, Paul, what are you saying? And I think what he's saying is we ought to avoid people who claim to be Christians but who are living a double life. And I don't mean people who are struggling with their sins. I mean who are deliberately living in the world and living in Christ and are trying to live a double life. I think he's saying we ought to avoid people who want all the benefits of being in Christ and want all the pleasures of the flesh and the world. We ought to avoid people who fight for Jesus by day and fight for Satan by night. Those are the kinds of people we ought to avoid. In fact, he gives very strong language here, doesn't he? Did you notice that? He said, don't even eat with these people. Don't even have them over to your house for dinner. Don't even go to Perkins or wherever you like to go with them. Don't even eat with them, but separate yourself from among them. Because, he's saying, if you live your life alongside of them, just like there's no problems, you are communicating to them with your behavior a lie. And that lie would be that your behavior is not really that important or that serious. And that your behavior does not have eternal consequences. And so he's not saying we ought to be hateful to people. He's simply saying don't live among them as though there's no problems with living in the world and living in Christ. There are eternally consequential problems for doing that. And so we have to separate from folks who are trying to straddle the fence there. We have to lovingly, graciously, prayerfully, but firmly separate ourselves from such as these Tell them why we're doing so. Tell them that we love them. Tell them that we'll be praying for them. Tell them that we don't think we're better than them, but we have to go with Christ. No matter what the cost, we have to follow Christ. And we're simply praying for them to come along with us. And if they won't, the sad thing is we have to separate. We have to not become partners with people who are trying to live in both mixing bowls. It won't work. It won't work. If you ever get to a place in your life where you have to separate from a person like that, or where you're trying to fight so you don't have to separate from a person like that, I want to point you to two texts that will really help you. They're familiar texts, but I've gone there many, many times, and I hope you won't mind going there with me once more. We'll go first to Matthew 18:15 through 20. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. And while you're turning there, let me push on something just for a second. If you ever do get to the place where you have to separate from someone in Christ or where you're fighting not to have to, that will be a difficult time of your life. It, it is not easy to live day in and day out in conflict with a brother or sister. Amen? It's difficult. It will cause you to lose sleep. It might cause a knot in your stomach. It might cost you tears. It will be difficult. In our flesh, I think when we get to places like that, we're prone to leave the Word of God behind and leave prayer behind and try to solve things on our own. And so what I want to say to you this morning is if you are now in a place or if you get to a place where you're having to work through conflict with someone, cling to the Word of God. Cling to it. It really is a light for the feet, a lamp for the feet, and a light for the path. It really is like having a flashlight when you're out camping and you don't trip over the rocks and the roots and things like that. It really is like that. And when we neglect it, we choose to walk in the darkness, and that's not a good thing. So I just want to encourage you, when you get into conflict, deny your flesh and cling to the Word of God with all your might. Let's start with uh, Matthew eighteen fifteen. here. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So let me just take a couple minutes and lay out for you how I view this passage. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail and and it's probably going to frustrate a couple of you. I'm going to kind of go quick. But what I'm trying to do simply is set us on a path so that you can go back to this later and, uh, and get more depth out of it. First of all, The goal of the process here is to win back our brother or sister in Christ. It's really important that we get that. The goal is restoration of relationships, not division. If we have to divide, then we have to divide. But we don't want to divide. We want to stay united with those who are in Christ. So keep in your mind, the goal of this whole deal is restoration. And don't let, especially when you're in conflict, don't let the devil talk you into thinking that, division would actually be a better thing because it's not. We want restoration. So I see five stages to this process and the goal is to get to restoration as early in the process as you can. You're not trying to get through all five steps. You're trying to get to restoration. And if you can get there in step one, then praise God. Don't go to step two. You won't need to go to step two. And if you can get there in step two, then praise God. You don't have to go to step three. So the goal is restoration, not getting through all five steps. With that, here's the first step. Ask the question, has there been an offense? Jesus said, if your brother has sinned against you, right? That word if is a big, big word it could be that the other person actually has not committed an offense but that you are making a mountain out of a molehill and maybe you're taking offense when when there's actually not even a molehill there it's just flat ground and you're making a mountain out of nothing so the first step is to put the magnifying glass down and pick up a mirror and look in the mirror and that mirror generally is best the Bible And one great passage you could go to is Matthew 7, 1 to 5, where Jesus talks about, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when there's, hello, this huge log coming out of your eye? I heard a guy when I was early in Christ, he was one of these old cowboys who got saved and then just wrote a bunch of cowboy songs for Jesus. And I don't remember how the tune went, but I remember the song saying, basically the idea was, the speck I see in your eye is the shadow of the log that's coming out of my eye. It's not even a speck in your eye, it's just my shadow that I'm casting. It could be that I'm the problem. So step one is to put my heart before the Lord and say, Lord, help me see myself as you are. And if I can forgive as you have forgiven me, then praise God, I'll do it. I'll do it. Hopefully some issues will be resolved in that point. But if the answer to the question is indeed yes, there has been an offense here, then you'll need to move on to step two, which is simply meet with that person one-on-one. Don't call your prayer circle and get everybody praying. You know, I'm going to give a prayer request, but sometimes that's another word for gossip. Don't do that. Go to that person. Go to that person. Minimize the exposure of the sin and go to that person and see if you can resolve the issue in private. If despite your best efforts, you're not able to do that, then Jesus said, take two or three other people along with you who are there to mediate and help the process and be a witness. They're not supposed to get involved in the conflict. So in other words, the idea is, and you have to watch this because I think if you do get to this stage, our tendency is to take one or two with us that are on our side and will argue for us. But the picture Jesus has in mind is not for us to gang up on the other person. The picture He has in mind is for these other people to be witnesses and mediators to help us get resolution. We want restoration here. And so you're looking for people who are wise in Christ and can come along to help you. If despite all of your efforts, you're still not able to get restoration, Jesus said step four is take the matter to the church take it to the church and there are different ways of interpreting that and i'm open to discussion about this but the way that i interpret that is bring the matter to the elders of the church and let the elders decide how much of the church needs to know about the situation there are times when it's right and it would be a sin not to expose a person's sin to the whole congregation there are times when that's true but i can tell you as an elder and i've served as an elder for many years in a couple different churches That that was not my immediate goal. My immediate goal is restoration and to include as few people as possible in the process because you know as well as I do, the more people involved, generally the more drama involved, right? And we don't want drama. We want restoration. So it is possible that the whole church would have to be informed about a situation for the good of the person. Not the shame, but the good of the person. But hopefully the elders wouldn't have to do that. However... If bringing the situation before the elders and even the whole church does not produce restoration, then step five is to treat this person as though they are not a believer. Now, I do think this implies some form of communication or excommunication. And we have yet, I'll be honest with you as elders, to think through in this church how we would handle excommunication. But I get that from 1 Corinthians 5.13, because Paul ends that little paragraph by saying, purge the evil person from among you. And that can't mean anything except put them out of your fellowship. What else can that possibly mean? And so I do think it implies some form of excommunication. But more so, here's what I think it means. I think Jesus is saying, if you get all the way through all those steps and the person is unrepentant, you need to realize that person is not a believer. They are not a believer. They may know how to play the Christian game. They may know how to use Christian words. They may know how to make it in the Christian world. But in fact, they are not a Christian. Listen, if you are truly in Christ and the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you, then you will respond to correction. Eventually. Eventually. You may whine for a while. You may rebel for a while. You may dig in your heels and have to be dragged for a while. But eventually, you will respond to correction. The Lord will not let you be at peace when you're at hostility with Him, right? I'm talking from personal experience here. There are times when I was so stubborn before the Lord. I mean, stubborn. I heard my wife say, Amen. Stubborn. But eventually, eventually, the Lord got to me. And she has been very wise when we've been in situations like that. Rather than nagging me, she prays for me. Because she knows the Lord will get to me. And eventually, boom, my heart softens and we restore the relationship. That's what believers do. If a person will not respond to restoration you can be sure they are not a christian that person is not in christ and the holy spirit is not them not in them and so you are told to treat them like an unbeliever now what does that mean i think that means try to share the gospel with them how would you treat any unbeliever don't don't be mean toward that person treat them as you would any unbeliever and try in any way that you can to share The gospel with them pray that God would soften their heart one more final thought from these verses in 18 through 20 I just take from those verses this idea that prayer must absolutely be a vital part of this whole entire process it is a miracle friends for God to soften someone's heart isn't it even when you have been the stubborn one or I have been the stubborn one it takes God to access my heart to humble me and so how else will I get that result but by prayer by pleading with the Father to do in the other person's heart what I cannot do in myself. And the other thing is, dealing with situations like this takes an enormous amount of wisdom. Haven't you experienced that before when you're working through conflict with someone? There are just so many wrong paths that you could take that will cause more problems than solutions. And sometimes it's so confusing. Father, do I take a left here? Do I take a right here? Do I go forward, backward? Do I stop? What do I do? and we must have the wisdom of God in these situations. We can't rely on our own wisdom. And so prayer is an absolute necessity that God would give us wisdom and soften the heart of the other person as well as ours. It's all we have time for in Matthew 18. Please turn with me now to Galatians 6. Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 and this is really talking about the kind of heart we ought to have as we're approaching a conflictual situation when we might have to not partner with someone who is also in Christ. Galatians 6, 1-5, to Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have his own bear to load. I mean, each will have to bear his own load. I'm just going to say six very quick things about this passage, and then we'll be done for the morning. The wisdom that Paul shares with us here applies to a person who's been caught in any transgression look at verse 1 there you'll see that into the first clause but if anyone is caught in any transgression that means that no transgression is too small to demand restoration and no transgression is too big that it is beyond restoration so we're talking about any sin here not just big ones but any sin at all number two The word caught that Paul uses in verse 1 essentially means to be overtaken by something. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have been walking in sin and someone else caught you in what you were doing. It just means that you were overtaken by something and it's come to the light. So the way I interpret this is that the person in question has been caught by the Holy Spirit, either by internal conviction and confession or by external confrontation from another brother or sister. But the point is, no matter how it's come out, somehow sin has come out into the open and it has to be dealt with. Number three, Paul calls those who are to restore, he calls them spiritual. I want. I think that word... We we may be tempted to hear that word as though there are some who are spiritual and just a little bit better than those who have been caught in sin. And I am sure that Paul does not mean to communicate that. That somehow the rest of you are just a little cut above from those of us who have been caught in sin. This, This is not the picture. The picture is the spiritual are the ones who are not caught in sin at this moment and they have eyes to see the spiritual aspects of the situation that's at hand. Whenever you sin, friend, part of what happens is your eyes close and you can't see anymore. You kind of fall asleep and you're not awake to the things of the Spirit. The spiritual are those who are awake by the grace of Christ and who have perspective on the spiritual dynamics in a particular situation. So they're not a cut above. They are just by Christ's grace awake. For those who are awake, number four, They are to restore those who have been caught with a certain kind of spirit, namely with a spirit of gentleness. That word gentleness here in the Greek in this particular instance means gentle friendliness. I like that. It's gentle friendliness. So if you ever or if you are now in a situation where you have to restore a brother or sister who's in sin, you do so with a spirit of being a friend to them. You are on their side. They are not the enemy. The devil is the enemy. And what we want is restoration with Christ in the church and with each other. So we may have to confront and be very honest and talk through difficult things. I've been in situations where we were up till two, three, four in the morning writhing over very difficult things, but we did it as friends. We did it as people with a common cause, and that was restoration to Christ and with each other. So if we have to consider not partnering with someone, consider separating from them. We ought to fight for it as though they're not the enemy, but the devil is the enemy and Christ is the Lord. Number five, those who are awake are to restore those who have been caught in sin with an attitude of self-awareness. Probably one of the most dangerous times for a soldier in battle is when a fellow soldier has been shot and he has to go out from his cover into the line of fire, grab that person and drag him off the field. It's a pretty dangerous time, isn't it? They're basically a sitting duck there for anyone who might be a sniper to come along and shoot them. It's like that for us. When we go to restore a brother or sister in sin, we put ourselves right in the line of fire and it's a very dangerous time. Paul said, watch out because you too might be susceptible to the temptation and the sin you're trying to rescue this other person from. You are very, very vulnerable at that moment. And so Paul says, Be aware. Keep watch. Stay awake. And let the reality that you too could fall into sin keep you humble. Don't let your heart get arrogant over a situation. I was a part of a restoration situation once and it actually didn't work. We, we had a pastor who had been caught in sin. It wasn't sexual, but it was very serious. And he was just unrepentant. He didn't think it was any problem what he was doing. And he was absolutely refusing to resign the church. And in the family of churches we were in at that time, there was nothing the denomination could do about it. They couldn't make the guy resign. And it was not a good situation. And so, and I was an associate pastor at that time. In fact, the way it all came out is he took me out to lunch and he said, he said, I'm going to let you to, let you come into my inner sanctum. And as soon as I heard that kind of language, I just went, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. And he just laid it out, and, and it turned out he was really just trying to manipulate me and not really confess, and it was a horrible situation. But I will confess my sin now. I got a Messiah complex in that situation. And I thought, well, praise God, he's chosen me to save the church. And uh, I really got a Messiah complex. And next thing you know, I didn't fall into the sin he fell into, but I fell into the sin of pride, of anger, of, of all kinds of things that weren't good. And I had to repent of a whole string of things, which made the situation more complicated, because now we couldn't just deal with his sin, we had to deal with my sin too. And that's when this text, this was in 1992, that's when this text just grabbed my heart. Jesus brought me here. And He really drove this text deep into my soul. Charlie, don't do that again. Next time you have to restore someone, realize you are a sinner too. You could do anything that this guy has just done. No matter how heinous it is, no matter how hard his heart is. So I just pass that on to you as a fellow traveler. Watch your heart. And know that that you are vulnerable when you're in a process of restoration of someone else. Finally, Paul says that those who are awake ought to do restoration in a spirit of Christ-likeness, which means bear the burden of the other person. And what's the burden when someone has sinned? Mainly, I think that burden is shame. It's shame. And we should not be afraid to take on ourselves the shame of coming close to a sinner because that's exactly what Christ did for us. You realize that's one of the reasons they killed Jesus, is because he hung out with sinners. And his shame, their shame, went on him. And the religious people couldn't deal with that. And so that was one reason why they killed him. We should not be ashamed either to take one another's shame on ourselves as Christ did for us. Well, there's a lot more to be said about Matthew and Galatians 6, but I'll have to leave it at that for now. And I pray... That if you ever do have to get into a process that you will cling to these texts and I hope that they will help you. And I hope that this morning has set you on a path where you can think more deeply about these things yourself when a brother or sister of yours has jumped back into the mixing bowl of the world and needs help getting out. Now very quickly, I'm only going to take about two minutes with this. I just, I do want to say a word about not partnering with non-Christians. Because, uh, well let, let me just, let me just say a few things. I am sure When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, when he says, I'm not talking about people in the world, I'm sure that he doesn't mean that we're free to intermingle with the world and to behave in the world in any way that we want to behave. I am sure he does not mean that. If you look at 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, just read both chapters, take you about three minutes, you'll see without a shadow of doubt, he's not saying, indulge in any sin you want to indulge in. He's not saying that. But, I do think Paul is saying that since we're the salt and light of the world, we Christians cannot completely withdraw from the world, which means we cannot completely withdraw from people who are in the world. How else will the gospel be shared? So here's a tension that Christians have to live in between. There's two things pulling us. They're both equally important and they're both always true and we have to live in this tension. The one is expressed by texts like 2 Corinthians 6:17 and 18. Paul wrote Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So come out from the nations and do not be like them. On the other hand, there's texts like Matthew twenty-eight nineteen: Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And how are we going to do that if we isolate ourselves, withdraw, and cloister ourselves away from people who are in the world. And so to be Christians is to live in the tension between coming out of the nations and going to the nations at the same time. At the same time. Come out and go to simultaneously. It's to live in the tension between I am in the world, but I am of the world. And that is not an easy tension to live in, is it? So, I do think Paul is calling us in Ephesians 5-7 not to get too close to the people who are in the world, so close that we begin behaving like they behave. I'm sure he's calling us to that. But, in light of 1 Corinthians 5, I don't think he's saying move into a monastery. I don't think he's saying completely withdraw from people who are in the world. How else will you be light in the darkness if you don't go to the darkness? So, just finally... Here's the message for the day. Be the light of the world in Christ, but don't jump back into the mixing bowl of the world. Let's pray. Father, how I beg for Your help with these things. How I beg for Your help because it's difficult to work these things out on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. In life at full speed, it's difficult, Father. But... You can handle that difficulty. And so I pray that You would help us know what it means to come out of the world and to go into the world simultaneously. I pray that You would help us to be the light of the world without jumping into the mixing bowl of the world. Please help us, Father. Help us to look at the beauty of what You've done for us in Christ, at the horror of disobedience, and then to choose to follow in Your way, all the way, no matter what it costs. And at the same time, help us to bring as many other people as we can along with us on this journey. And how I pray, our God and Father, that You would make every person at glory of Christ a light in this world. How I pray that we would be a church that is passionate, about sharing the gospel with people who don't know you and how i pray that we would see one and then ten and then hundreds come to christ because of the power of your mercy pouring through this through us and even as all that happens father may we not slip back into our former manner of living so please help us lord to walk this tightrope between going to the world and coming out of the world we trust in you for this lord and in advance of seeing what you will do We say thank you because you're a good Father and you guide us in the way that we should go. Please, Father, glorify yourself in us in all these things. And it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.